Welcome to Behind the Movement. I'm Kyle Fincham. You're listening. I appreciate that. Um, really excited you're here. I'm thrilled to share uh, this conversation that I had with Alma Glovin recently. Um, it was really a, a, a special chat. Um, we got to have a conversation that that took a lot of twists and turns and went in some really amazing and interesting directions. So I, I'm, I'm really excited to get to share this with you. Before I get to it, though, a couple of announcements. First, I want to thank everybody who came out to the events last weekend in New York, the first one in Westchester at Croton-on-Hudson, the second one in Long Island with the crew from Locomotion New York. Both were amazing. Both were really special. Um, I had the best time getting to play and facilitate and chat with everybody. Um, yeah, everything about it was was amazing, top to bottom. They were beautiful days. Um, so if you were there, thank you so much. You all made it really special. Um, I'm going to be doing two more events next month. Um, the first one is going to be in Seattle. Uh, that is going to be on... Sunday, May 9th at 10 a.m. It's a two-hour event. Um, If you're in the Seattle area or if you want to uh, travel to get there, um, you can sign up through the website, movementbrooklyn.com. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I've never been to Seattle before. So um, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a great time. The second event is going to be the following weekend on Saturday the 15th. the Athletic Playground in Emeryville, which is in the Bay Area of San Francisco, is going to host Infinite Play. Um, so yeah, that's going to be at 10 a.m. also that Saturday um, at a local park not too far from the Athletic Playground. And if you're interested in that, you can sign up through uh, their website, it's tapgym.com, T-A-P-G-Y-M.com, or you can go to movementbrooklyn.com, and we have a, a link set up to their website. Um, and if you sign up in advance, I think before May 9th, you can save 10 bucks on the, on the event. So if you're in the area, um, I'd love to see you there. I'm really excited about it. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've been to, uh, been to the Bay, so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be going out there. Cool. Those are my announcements. Um, Let's get to this podcast. As I said, uh, this was a really special conversation to get to to speak with Al Maglovin. Um, A few weeks back, I got a message from Tom Wexler saying that um, I should reach out to Al Mag, their old friends, and that he, he thought we might have a lot to talk about. And, uh, you know, a recommendation from Tom is taken very seriously. So I quickly messaged Almog. We scheduled immediately. And, um, yeah, um, Tom couldn't have been more right. The conversation was uh, really interesting, unique, and special. Um, If you're unfamiliar with Almog, uh, here's a little bit of his background. Uh, he's a professional dancer. He's a teacher and a therapist from Israel. He holds a degree in psychology and humanities from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, 
where he focused on the study of chronic pain and psychological flexibility. He is also a practitioner and international teacher of the Elon Lev method. And before COVID hit, he used to give weightlessness workshops around the world, emphasizing how physical connection to living environments can take movers well beyond their perceived limitations. Right now, he's home in Israel, practicing Tai Chi, treating, and living. Yeah, like I said, this was a special one. And uh, I'm not going to waste any more time. Here it is, my conversation with Almag Loban. And where are you at now? I'm in my small village in the north of Israel. Uh, here, that used to be my uh, resting place from traveling. So I used to travel a lot for teaching and treating. And since the corona started, uh, the last I just came back from treating in Paris in. Uh, uh, February 2020 and then beginning of March I was supposed to go to treat and teach in, in Germany and that was cancelled and since then I'm, I'm home so mostly treating guiding therapists and uh, just now starting to teach but it's, it's a beginning coming with the spring yeah yeah I think we're going to start seeing more and more of these opportunities right as it starts to warm up and summer rolls in yeah, looking forward to meet people. When you, yeah, oh man, I can't, I can't wait. I um, I'm curious. You said you were traveling for treating, and I know I I read, you know, that you I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think you said Elon. Elon Lev. Elon Lev method. Can you can you yeah. like uh, explain it? Sure. Um, so it's easy to explain to you because you obviously uh, see the value of playfulness obviously from just that we didn't talk before today but i just saw some of your videos and it seems to be like a clear factor in your uh, in whatever you teach so have you ever tried feldenkrais or, or you heard of uh, functional integration yeah i'm familiar i, I actually read uh, elusive obvious probably six or seven months ago yes it's one of the books that's now elevating my computer so we'll see eye to eye <laughs> uh, it's also good to read not just as an element but um, yeah so Elon Lev he studied Feldenkrais and he studied bioenergy and he studied reflexology but the, the, the main thing that I can say is that he is uh, looking to bring back playfulness into the body not for the sake of just uh, uplifting the spirit uh, but mostly to allow the body to refresh itself whenever it's needed. So the treatment goes like the patient is lying on a table, either there are different positions for, for, the, for how the patient lies, but the point is that the patient lies however is comfortable for them. And I look for patterns in their body. Uh, and I do that playfully. I don't want it to be, uh, to, I don't want them to feel like a lab rat or like a corpse, you know? I want them to feel alive. But I also want to remind them that when they were much younger, uh, playfulness was like the only way to do things. So it's not that I'm saying, hey, look at this route, it's probably better for you, because I don't know which route is better. I'm just reminding that there are more and more possibilities than we consider. And I do that by following wherever the body goes and saying, okay, it's going in this direction, maybe I'll introduce another one. And there are also sounds 
that are introduced, like funny sound, like <laughs> stuff like this. Um, but mostly, I, I want to kind of bring back um, a relationship with the body that is not so predetermined. Um, that it's not like, okay, I'm coming to you, Mr. Therapist, heal me, and I can walk and, and keep doing my business. Because probably the reason for whatever brought you here uh, has to do with your patterns in your life. And I, I'm not uh, pretending to know which patterns exactly those are, but I want you to have the possibility in your life to, to find out those things as they come up. And instead of just fighting or solving them, playing with them. That's maybe the main, the main thing. I realize more and more that we're, we're like pattern machines, right? Like we're always kind of seeking patterns because everything is so complex and overwhelming that it's our way of like navigating through complexity is like finding the patterns so we can make good predictions. True. But the patterns end up being sometimes like the chains that hold us down because we all get Absolutely. deeper and deeper into like the pattern grooves. Absolutely. So you know how it is. I, I, I like to, um, more in my teaching, I like to refer to, to connect between any practice that we, uh, that we do consciously and whatever happens throughout our day that we uh, relate to as the in-between. And the patterns that we have, they, they show up everywhere in the in-between mostly because we're less aware of them, but also in the things that we plan to do. But let's look at relationships, like romantic relationships. Um, the times, at, at least in my experience and from what I see with my patients, um, the times where we are alive have nothing to do with predictions have nothing to do with these patterns. It's like a fraction of a moment between things that we're supposed to do that we realize the person that we are with is unpredictable. And, and these moments, they feel the most alive to me. Um, so from uh, being uh, very much of this prediction machine, uh, in the last few years, I try more and more to see my prediction let it go and then just see what comes up. And the more I let these predictions go, the more I find that I can be all the time surprised, not by uh, not looking at the prediction, but just by allowing the small variations that don't fall into categories to, to rise and, and present themselves. Um, I, I spoke, so I, I spoke to Tom recently and I feel like this was kind of something that came up, you know, this, these moments of surprise and these um, these like new, almost like new predictions we can discover. And I I kept speaking about like our our like self too, our our innate intelligence that we often like get in the way of, right? With our ego or our our, our identity. So when I hear you talk, it almost it sounds a lot of like this thing that I think about, and perhaps it's just. A different way of saying it, but this idea of like, kind of letting the ego be a little bit of an observer and not the not the pilot. Right. Yes. I think it's it's um, out of phrase. Words are challenging, man. 
there is there is something in uh, different relationships to talking about the ego um, that I, I still I, I haven't found any of them satisfying enough and and I'll tell you why there is if we look at movement um, also when the ego is very present like I, I say I'm dancing and I have a certain wish or ambition and I wish to explore this ambition in my body and, and you can relate this ambition to the ego um, and I, I don't want to dissolve or deny or even push away this ambition. In a way, I want to celebrate this part of my body. <laughs> so to, to let that kind of breathe through me with no resistance whatsoever, because often the resistance that is found in the body and, and the things that we deny are a part of, like a, are a consequence of trying to push away a part of us. And the ego is a very fundamental part of who we are as we engage in the world. So I'm saying, let's not deny that. Let's embrace it as something that is, in many ways, our best friend. <laughs> or it's, it's been with us for very long. And I think it's wise not, not to deny it, but to, to let it be a, a loyal companion mm -hmm. and a guide, maybe. Yeah, I, I, I found that I had this great teacher when I was in theater school, and he used to talk about how we shouldn't spend much time in front of the mirror. He said that the mirror does this thing that, that, that he just, oh, he, he was kind of elusive about it. He was like, just don't spend much time in the front of the mirror. It doesn't do good things for us. Um, but what it, I realized he was talking about was that like, it just kind of reinforces and, and, and strengthens the ego as kind of like the dominating force, as opposed to letting it be kind of this, this dancer with the innate intelligence, right? Like that they, they, they should complement each other as you're saying. And sometimes people are like, they want to turn their ego off completely. And they think that like just the innate intelligence should be the, the soul driving force. But I realized what he was trying to say was like, don't let this thing become the dominating piece. Kind of what we see, I think in the West is that the identity is like number one. Right. Well, let's even assume that this is possible to let go of the ego at some point. I'm not at any way uh, claiming I think I can achieve that, but let's say it is possible. This time that I have until I get there, I don't want that to be a war or a battle with myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for ways to, as I am right now with an ego that is definitely there, I want to befriend this ego and not to and that, that is already bringing a lot of solace and many opportunities in this in-between, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you know, with the work that you do, and it sounds like both in your teaching and when you're treating people, is, is almost like facilitating the opportunity to like have fresh eyes, to see things in, in new ways. Is that right? Absolutely. And oftentimes there are more ways to see things than the eyes. My eyes are quite uh, in a bad condition. They're deteriorating. I, I don't see very well. So when I started using glasses, like, I don't know, uh, 15 years ago, um, at first I was very concerned about this deterioration. And whenever I walked without glasses, I was, I felt like handicapped. 
And then some years ago, maybe five years ago, I, I started, I heard about this guy called Meir Schneider. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was born nearly blind and he taught himself to see. It sounds quite miraculous. I, I met him, he's, he's a nice fella. A lot of ego, but uh, um, I mean, if you were born nearly blind and you taught yourself to see, I cannot see how an ego would go unnoticed, you know? <laughs> um, but anyway, he, he introduced to my life uh, an, an option to um, not fear, not seeing well. So have that um, possibility of having soft eyes as I'm, as I'm proposing to be soft towards the ego, the eyes are a part of that. Everything in the body is a part of that. Also the parts that we see as less functioning. Um, so more and more I allow myself to walk. I'm driving with glasses. Yeah, I don't want to hit anyone. But when I walk in the street, I, I live in a village. There are really nice uh, trees and fields around. And sometimes I allow myself to have this um, blurry vision and to see also with the ears and to see with my skin, um, to see through the back of my head. I'm saying seeing because, you know, if we, if we, if we say look, then sometimes it's like, a, it's an action that is kind of, I don't know how to say, it's like oriented into something clear, but as I have no clarity in my vision, I see whatever I see. I see this blurry, it's like an impressionist painting. <laughs> um, but more and more I see through other senses as well. And it's, uh, it's bringing a lot of information that I don't think I would pay attention to with clear eyes. I, I read um, the Norman Deutsch book about plasticity. And yes, I, think sir. I think he talked quite a bit about this, right? Yeah. This idea that like our other senses and, and parts of our brain can like facilitate a lot of the similar qualities of like the, the weaker senses. Yes, it's all avenues to the brain and the brain is weaved throughout our whole body. You know, the nervous system reaches every tiny bit of us. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how the information gets in as long as you allow it to get in and you embrace whatever is there. Yeah, create a certain flow between the different channels as well. I, can't, I, I almost kind of envy that your eyes are, are a little blurry only because I recently was thinking about the idea that like, and I've read some stuff about this, that we've become this like highly visual culture when that's kind of a new phenomenon, when in the past we were really more auditory in touch and those were, are more intimate senses. And, and the eyes kind of bring us further away from things. They're like this like a uh, distance sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, I almost, I almost imagine you kind of like navigating the world in a more intimate way because you're, you have to be a little bit closer to things. And whenever you want, you can always close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy with the eyes. You can just, that's why the eyelids are there. If you want to have this disability, boom, you got it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Also earplugs, whatever. Like when I'm, when I'm, uh, okay, I'll make connections to what you said. One is that I, I treat hands on and um, I'm, 
using my hands uh, to clarify things that my eyes don't quite get. It's not because my vision is blurry, it's just if I'm looking for something deeper than the skin, sometimes it's easier for me to feel with my hands uh, than, than to see with my eyes. Um, and then there are many parts of the treatment where I close my eyes or I, or I look around to, to kind of distract myself from focusing too much on trying to see. That's also something Neil Schneider says really beautifully. He says that a lot of the reason there is a, a impaired vision these days, people need more and more glasses. Besides of uh, using screens so much, when vision was originally intended to you know, see prey or a predator from far away and kind of, he said that reading the news used to be around the hill and not so close to our face. But another factor that he said that I think is very relevant to the work that both of us do is reading and seeing from a place of boredom is introducing effort to your system. And that's creating more and more effort uh, for it different parts of, of, of uh, receiving an image. And I find that true through different channels of, uh, of receiving information from the world. Wherever we are bored, we introduce more and more effort and more resistance. So that's why the practice that I think is very worth nurturing uh, is one that you're interested in. And that will automatically make you in a better state to interact with the world. I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sometimes I, I sometimes wonder, and maybe it was, yeah, I, I sometimes wonder now, it's almost like we almost don't, maybe we don't give ourselves the opportunity to, to discover that the things that we're interested in, because we, we don't allow ourselves to get bored sometimes as well, to kind of bring it to the other side. You know, it's like there's so many distractions all the time that it's like, we don't welcome that that space of boredom where on the other side it's like the discoveries might be made yes mm. how did you get into teaching what you teach mm, i guess it's kind of a long loopy road but uh i went to school for theater i i dropped out of theater and I moved to New York to do stand-up comedy, which I did for almost 10 years. And then uh, I began teaching kind of like fitness classes, just because I, you know, as an artist, you have to like find ways to make money when the money's not coming in from the art. But I realized I was like, uh, I think from a creative perspective, I was really satisfied with what I was doing in that fitness kind of space. So I wanted to like explore that more. And fast forward, I started exploring movement and then different forms of movement and started almost coming back full circle to where I began in theater, where I was kind of infatuated with like vaudeville and movement classes. And, you know, I've realized that that is almost the, the thing I've been seeking all along was what we were doing in that, in that space. So now it's almost like that's where I'm at with my experience attached to it now. Awesome. So you were in one place, some necessity 
that you a little bit uh, away from its core. And in some swirly way, you found your way to kind of come almost full circle. And I think it doesn't matter how this circle looks. Um, it's very, very important to realize that whatever it is that one is doing, if it's not um, accurate, it's very worth taking this small detour. It might be a long one. It might even lead to a very different point. But taking this uh, detour or trip or journey or whatever you want to call it um, is it started from you allowing yourself to meet boredom where you were. And, and for many people that stay in the same place, even though they feel it's not very accurate for them, it's this fear of the boredom that doesn't allow for them to kind of start going over the border of maybe getting to a different territory. Um, and it doesn't matter what necessity uh, brings that, if it's a financial one or if it's uh, interest or if it's um, falling in love with someone overseas and then starting a completely different job, it really doesn't matter because we know so little, man. That's, that's like, that's the bottom line. <laughs> It's very useful to, to admit this and, and to not fight it. Um, I, I see recently, not, not just recently, but for, for quite long now, that there is this fear of not knowing. And I don't mean this in a spiritual quest kind of way, but in the most practical levels, it's so rare now to hear someone in a conversation, in a conversation say, I don't know. I don't know, what do you think? And I, 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 I miss it, you know? Sometimes I kind of know something and I just say, I don't know for, for the sake of this being a part of a conversation because it needs to be allowed and also welcome um, because this also raises a certain level of wonder that is possible and that introduces playfulness and directions that we didn't think about in the first place. So, yeah not knowing boredom, um, these, are, these are super essential and they're not just luxuries, I find. If someone is interested in, in making what they do feel more valuable, I think these are the go-to. Allow yourself to experience boredom and wonder, it's, it won't kill you. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're so right. Like when you decide you know something, curiosity stops right there. Mm. right yeah. yes. so it's almost like you know i imagine taking something that maybe i know very well and then saying i don't know and looking at it through the lens of curiosity something maybe that's very familiar yes and i'll tell you like maybe i don't know how your your uh, autodidactic skills are but mine are not amazing and I'm quite lazy as my, like my character is quite lazy. So I use interactions with people or with things around me to kind of uh, lure my curiosity to the surface. And for, for quite a long time, I had no curiosity in anything. Like, you know, in, in primary school, I, I loved everything. And then somewhere along 14, like when I was 14, I, I like I lost interest in anything, everything. And it was a very sad period, but it was needed. 
Um, so from that, like what helped me to start um, seeing beyond that phase was, well, okay, I'll go a little bit into life story. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, I'm getting some tea before. Okay. Okay. So, story time. I've been dancing since I'm nine years old, and I used to love it. Um, yeah, it was the one place where I didn't think, and I was completely free, and... Also, you know, when you love something to such extent that really nothing can shake you, like I was mocked in school and I was, uh, you know, going to audition and not passing, but nothing shook me. It was like everything felt like a positive experience. It was like, uh, yes, just give me more. <laughs> um, and then I was maybe, yeah, around 14. That's why I went into this uh, story. Uh, when I uh, started having a very strong backache, uh, back pain. And it was more and more limiting and it became chronic. So I, I got to a phase where I could not dance and not have pain. But still my love was to, to dancing was so strong that I, it, kept, it kept me there. But slowly but surely the balance started to shift and I had more and more pain and less and less love to what I was doing. And it started to be unbearable. Um, and when I was, uh, I was dancing in Israel and abroad and um, with a company and freelancing. And it got to a phase where I was between tours, we had one day in Israel and I couldn't walk. I was like lying, lying in bed and was, it was agonizing. And my father gave me a book called Healing Back Pain, The Mind-Body Connection by Dr. John Sarno. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Um, and I said, well, come on, dad, this is nonsense. And I just leave me alone. I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> just want to get on the plane and somehow survive. And he said, look, your, your situation, your condition can't get any worse. You look like shit. <laughs> Take this book to the plane and see what happens. And I, I got on the plane and I started reading. I thought, okay, this is probably another how-to book that won't get me anywhere, but okay, let's give it a shot. And I started reading and... Uh, around like after 20, 30 pages, I, I get up to go to the bathroom and my pain from spiking 10 uh, reduced to like three, four. I was like, okay, what is this shit? I'm, I'm not, I'm not I, I didn't even buy into what the book was proposing and still somehow there was this major shift. So in brief, what, what the book was proposing is that this very acute pain that was with me for so long um, might have some, something to do with um, issues I'm not dealing with. Some repressed stress, some trauma maybe. Um, and it wasn't, it's not like I, I resolved my issues, but I just admitted that there might be some factor uh, of that repressed trauma that I wasn't dealing with. And that was uh, scary and beautiful and fascinating to find out. And from then on, um, 
like I, I did a certain journey with this back pain, but from then on, it was no longer um, a hidden terrorist in my body. Like whenever my back pain is someone else's neck pain or shoulder pain, or I don't know, but we all have a certain area in the body that is more inclined to inflame when something is not being dealt with. And just realizing that this was my soft spot, <laughs> um, introduced another uh, layer to knowing myself that I had, I didn't know um, existed. And that led me to leave uh, dancing and to go to study uh, psychology and cognitive science. And I focused mainly on studying chronic pain. And then I realized that uh, the university professors knew very little about the body um, in, in, the, in the, an experiential sense. I mean, like my experience from dancing, I couldn't translate it to writing papers, but I knew there is something there beyond words and conceptualizations. And I found that this was completely disregarded in university. So in the second year of studying psychology, I went to study Ilan Lev as a more uh, actual practice to kind of play with the theories I was uh, learning about the psyche. Um, and then when I got to focus more on, on the study of chronic pain, that's what I did. And then I met also the work of Norman Doidge and other neuroplasticians that were uh, kind of opening this path into seeing the whole as a more plastic uh, ongoing process that is constantly in interaction with the outside world. So it's interesting to hear you talk about this and you talk about this, this kind of critical moment where you were in university and you're receiving knowledge and in deciding like the knowledge is great, but I need to like, I need this like practical experience with this. Absolutely. And it's, I feel like more recently in conversations on the podcast, this keeps coming up this kind of like balance between like the, the, practice or experience and like knowledge in academia because they often get kind of like separated you know like oh this is where people dance and play over here and people over here are reading the books and studying the words but like they need to kind of dance with each other so hearing you talk about that through through this experience is really fascinating yes it, it kind of goes to, you know, learning more and more. And it also happens in dance and in, in the physical world that people learn more and more, you know, techniques of lifting things and, and of grappling with each other. And um, it's not that only in the world of scholars um, is the wish to learn everything present, you know? <laughs> so we have it also in the movement world. And what I ask is, what is I underlying this wish? Like, okay, let's say that we are from where you are right now, you are, uh, the opportunity to learn new things is completely blocked. Like, let's say that we have, we've reached our um, maximum, maximal capacity of information. Let's, let's play this game. And, and then what? And then that, that's, that's something I, I ask often. I ask myself, like, uh, and then it kind of makes you not only re-examine what you've learned, but also 
if you really ask yourself, why do I think that I need to learn more? Like, why is what I have right now not sufficient? Uh, then it touches on this deep feeling of insufficiency that so many of us are, are dealing with under the surface. Insufficiency, I think you said, I don't know, English. Um, but th this, is, this is something, perhaps the main thing that I, I address in my workshops, not by saying these words, but this is on the subliminal level what, where I'm aiming, is that we don't need anything else. Like we are really enough. And I don't mean it in the sense of, uh, you know, new, new age, beautiful mantras. I mean it in a very practical level. Like if you can walk with your loved one and give them your hand and have them sit down if they're in pain, you've already won your place in this world. <laughs> and if you can take your baby to their bed, you've absolutely won your place in this world. And if you can get out of bed when you're tired and go help them, that's like so much already. So I, I, I keep questioning this feeling of not enough because from the people that I've met that were in the top of their game, be it dancers or also scholars, some that I, that I talked with, some professors, um, or, you know, the, the more um, famous people we can all read or, or watch about, accomplishments have nothing to do with feeling of sufficiency. Um, and that's really important to remember. So if we play this game of, okay, what I've learned so far, um, and then also you might find that the things that are most valuable that you have are not things that you learn, not in school, not in a course, not in a workshop. It's just by interacting with the world, you learn, and this is what you have to give. That's, a, that's what I was thinking about as you, as you were saying that. I was, um, I was thinking about like, you know, the things we learn, and I realized as you were speaking that it had to do with like knowledge, like the, the learning that we can talk about. Whereas like the learning we can't talk about is really our magic, right? And, and I think when you talk about people not feeling efficient, you know, and, and not feeling like they have enough knowledge, it's almost like it's that, it's, it's, we need that reminder of like, no, we have so much information. We have billions of years of evolution in us that as you were saying, like, you know, that come out in, in, in different forms, whether it's, you know, um, physical problem solving that just happens in moments or compassion and empathy. These are things that are like built into us that, that we have and, and, they, and they get fed through experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, when, I, when, when you were talking about it, 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 it just, it kind of kept coming coming back to me that thing of like oh we have like we have we have einstein in us it's happening now yes yeah and it's also um so okay there are two there are two levels uh, on one level i say that for the feeling of sufficiency and of being enough this has nothing to do with uh, external studying, but for dealing with the world, there are, um, of course, many skills that we can learn. And I'm not saying it's either one or, or the other, but 
it's just uh, remembering that nothing that we can learn as a you know practical skill in the world can fill the void if we don't feel enough with ourselves that's what i find um have you have you watched have you watched the film uh this new pixar film soul no but i think i'm going to I think I think you have to. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just like seeing something that uh, that isn't there. But I I I don't often watch movies on planes anymore. Um, but we were I don't know maybe about an hour and a half away from landing in Boulder, and I didn't know what time it was. And I asked my wife. I said, "Oh, what time is it?" She says, "I don't know. You know, you should tap the screen and see what time it is." So I tap the screen. And the, it pops up and it tells me what time it is. And the only thing that it advertises is that I can watch Soul, this Pixar film. And I turned it on and I was deeply moved by the whole thing. I was, I don't know, I was on the cusp of like tears at the end. Um, but so much of, of what you're talking about is, is this film. You know, um, there's a beautiful moment where the guy is is walking down the street. I won't ruin it or anything, but you know, there's like a different soul inside this body, and is going through that experience of seeing things for the first time, and that kind of like magical moment. And then fast forward a little bit, and there's this realization that a soul doesn't need to enter a body with a purpose because the purpose is to like live the experiences, all the things that come with being humans, um, and that's not professions or skills or titles or definitions it's actually the whole body of like what we get to go through whether it's the emotions or the feelings and the combination of both that are like that is that is it <laughs> thumbs up yeah at least it's a very big part of it mm -hmm. i think what we got kind of got confused is uh proportions of how much of the value we give to this, to this soul that you just uh, beautifully articulated and things are collaborated on, <laughs> the, and how much we give to learning um, skills in the real world, as they say. So, so what, when, when it comes to things like skills, you know, how do you navigate the, the, the skill space? so to speak. Yes. Um, I try to look for what I love. I, I think that's, that's to, to take action in a certain direction. Um, so say, The Elan Lev method works a lot with uh, with the skeleton. So we move movement through the skeletal structure. And then of course it vibrates through different layers, but really fascinated with the, the area of the abdomen that I didn't learn much about. There is all the viscera there that I was uh, fascinated with. So I went to study um, a course in osteotai. It's a combination of osteopathy and Thai massage is focused on internal organs, internal organs massage. Man, that blew my mind. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't for the sake of like, okay, if I wish to be a really good therapist, I must be there. It just, something in me was yearning 
in this direction. So I want to study that. And I, I don't think I'm a better therapist because I did that, but it gave me um, another perspective, which I think is useful, and also a different vocabulary, a different way to approach parties. And then from that, I was, I felt like still, I, I wish to learn more about the viscera. So I found this uh, online course of Gil Headley. Have you heard of him? No. Um, he does um, uh, body dissections. So he takes cadavers, human forms, uh, and he dissects them in a very poetic way. <laughs> um, like he has, and what's another thing that's beautiful about him that he's sharing uh, his findings in, in the open. So he, he has a website that you can subscribe to for free. And he's saying, look, this is, this is uh, what I found in over 20 years of dissection. And if you wish to dive into this world, it's ready for you. Um, and something, it was a combination of my curiosity that was sparked by the osteotai massage and his generosity that allowed me to kind of dive in into 40 hours of dissecting cadavers online in the first uh, quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 what I maybe try to say is that I am not a very ambitious person, just my ambition is not enough. And being open to different stimulus allows me to kind of tunnel myself in the right direction. So like if just the Osteotai course wasn't enough for me to dive into the, the body dissection. But his like open invitation was like, okay, I'm going for it. I don't know what I'm going into, but I'm going for it. And I think this is maybe what, what I try also to propose in my workshops. It's not that I have something that I'm so fascinated about that I have to share. I, I really don't. But I see things in people that sometimes they don't see in themselves. And then I look for ways to kind of reflect this beauty that I see in them, in, in, in their experience. Um, and as you said in the start, sometimes it's not through the eyes, it's through other avenues into their experience. So what do your workshops look and feel like? That's a good question. Yeah, because now after, now after hearing so much of your experience and your insights, I'm trying to piece together something in my head and I'm like, it's not even worth it because it, it, it's probably not even close. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's good that you ask. I, I enjoy this challenge. Okay, I, I'll say another thing. Um, let's say there is a certain way I would usually explain what it is that I teach or how my workshops look like. But as I am trying to be as open as possible to what you are proposing to me in our talk in the last so and so minutes, it will alter the way I choose to introduce to you what I'm doing. And I find that being informed by what you propose to our interaction so far, I'll probably be able to explain myself better for your understanding. Um, so thank you for what we've been through so far. So um, it depends on the people in the space. What I look to do, um, 
is to offer a different way to experience the body. And this way is not necessarily a better one. It's just, as I said about the treatments, I'd like all of us to remember that we have an option. And what often happens in our habits and patterns, we kind of sign in for a lifetime contract without noticing. It's like we don't read the little letters in the bottom. Um, so this is just a reminder that, hey, there is another way and maybe it's worth looking into. So what you can always find is that I will see um, where people are using effort where it's not needed because something in their memory, experiential memory, is telling them that this is difficult. Or most often that they are not enough. So they have to master the force to do what it is that they need to do. Even if the task is very mild, just we, we are so little, uh, we have so little practice of using, uh, allowing ourselves to be gentle in the world. Like maybe when we pet a cub or, or a puppy or something, or if we lift a baby, but also think of it. Think of the last time you saw someone lifting a baby, someone that is not accustomed to dealing with babies, and see how much they're terrified of hurting this fragile being. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be this way. It's just the fear that we have of hurting something that is so fragile. So imagine how people walk to someone that is very sick, or how we walk around people that are like terminally ill. We walk on our tiptoes and we just make them more anxious. <laughs> We make them worry for us. So I, I try to remind myself, uh, by the way, everything that I teach, I, I, I practice for myself. And it's because I need this reminder that my proposition comes in a very genuine way. It's not like, hey, guys, I mastered this so I can teach. I am clueless, but I am introducing the things that I'm most fascinated with and that I can see that in my life are most missing. And as I know, I am not unique and our problems are pretty much identical, just in different forms and shapes, then I know that what I will introduce, and it doesn't matter which skill I wish to practice on, uh, it will be relevant. Kind of lost track, but mm -hmm. you get what I'm saying. The, the shape changes every time, um, the propositions alter, but I do keep asking the people that are in the space, what did you just experience? And I'm not asking it in the sense of like, I know, but you will tell me and then we'll keep on going. I really ask it because I'm clueless. Many times I see something that someone went through and their verbalized experience is worlds away. And what I aim to is that their verbalized experience and the way that they are presenting themselves to the world will be one. It doesn't always happen, but that's the kind of... Um, wishful play that I have. Because a lot of the frustration that we, that we feel when communicating with others is that we're not being understood. Oh. Or that we are partially understood. And it's always, at least I have this feeling, <laughs> that I explain something and I'm not understood in the way that I hoped I will be. And what often comes up is like, why is this person not really listening? But it, it's really not the case. Many people listen quite well, 
but some fear in me took me off the track of what I was really trying to convey and by attempts to protect myself and to maybe uh, sound wise, <laughs> um, it kind of altered my message to the world. Do, 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 you think, do you think that sometimes things like the miscommunication come from maybe a lack of respect that we might have for all of our tools for communicating. And maybe that's what you're kind of saying, but I, I think that sometimes like we lean heavily into our words and think that that is the thing that needs to be nurtured the most in terms of communication. And this is only coming to me because I was just reading this, this book on, on, on improvising. And he was talking about playing a game using gibberish where we, we, we communicate in gibberish, but it asks so much more of all of our other ways of communicating because we can't actually use the word. So if I told you a story about what what I did this morning and only spoke in gibberish, I'd have to use all these other qualities. Then you're you're receiving information that you can maybe observe and talk about, but then your nervous system is also kind of taking in all the information with my eyes and my tones and 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 it's elevating our ability to communicate. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I, my my question is: Do do you think part of our 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 problem or, or not, maybe it's not a problem, whatever, that we can communicate better by not being so dependent on the words. Man, that's why I do movement workshops. <laughs> 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 like uh, words are, I read uh, a friend sent me a quote recently in a book he read that words are mostly used to deceive ourselves and deceive others. Not necessarily intentionally, but that's often what happens. Because when we use, uh, you know, every person has his own connotations to each word. And even if we try to make it sound very universal, it's, it's, it's a game of, of, um, of connections and connotations. You're bound to have a million different interpretations, even to the most simple message. But the bodies, they don't lie. So often, you know, there was an event that... Um, that Tom was organizing and, and I was teaching there and um, he wasn't happy with how I was teaching. We had a talk after, after the class. Because <laughs> one of the things that I said was, uh, it was very uh, well-built uh, people, like, you know, martial artists and, and uh, athletes and peace. Um, and one of my remarks was, hey guys, you, you don't have to be afraid. And he told me after the class, why are you saying they shouldn't be afraid? Like, they're not afraid, they're doing much scarier things. I said, maybe in their awareness, they're not scared, but I can see in their body, there is so much fear holding on there. So that's, that's there that I'm, I'm addressing also when I teach. I want that the way we're presenting ourselves physically to the world, would be in line with how we experience our stuff. And even if that means admitting that I have fear in me or that I am, I am careful, I'm afraid I might hurt someone else or hurt myself. There are many different fears, but it takes admitting them or befriending your ego or what you wish to call it uh, to start to own this, this body that's, that's um, kind of asking for that. I think perhaps the, the, the main uh, 
thing I learned from treating in the past five years is that the wish we all have is to be seen fully. And it doesn't mean that we will um, experience everything as a celebration of life. Sometimes things need to be seen that are very, uh, we experience them as shameful or yeah, just scary. Like if I will show this part of me, it will lead to my demise. <laughs> um, but without that, everything feels partial. So I don't mean like let's share our vulnerabilities with everyone. It's it's not it's not that. It's just make sure this is uh, something I'm telling myself and to you and to everybody. Make sure you have a place in your life where you are sharing yourself completely, where you're being seen completely. And if you don't have that place, that's an invitation to leave that spot where you feel very safe and to start to venture around and find a place where you have that someone that sees you. And when you have that, when we have that, that's really, that's everything. Yeah. It makes me think uh, back to doing stand-up and the people that I always felt the most drawn to and inevitably the people that most people were drawn to were these were these people who were willing to be what you're describing with everybody mm. and that was kind of that was kind of their magic but also like what they had to kind of live with on a regular basis but do you mean do you mean performers yeah mm -hmm. on stage mm-hmm I question if that is real vulnerability. Okay. Because it's one thing sharing, like, you know, uh, the, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is Louis C.K. Mm -hmm. An example, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that he shares, like, everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or maybe uh, many parts that other people will try to hide. Um, And he's like putting himself out there. But how often have you heard him in a show um, speaking kindly about himself? Mm. For some people, that's the scary part. And I, I've seen, I watched quite a lot of, of stand-up comedians and often like, you know, showing your faults is the go-to. Um, because, you know, that works and that gets the crowd emotionally stimulated and that's engaging, but that's, every, yeah, being, being uh, vulnerable is very different for each person. Um, and also the place where you choose to be vulnerable, say, you know, I was a performer and I'm still performing sometimes uh, in dance performances and on the stage I can be very explosive. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I, I can celebrate my body to its uh, limits. But then when it comes to, you know, um, say, 
talking with my mother about something that uh, I'm afraid is about to hurt her. I'm not allowing myself to really be there. I'm so compromised in my fear of hurting her that my message comes so much less clear. <laughs> so th there are many different, the stage is often for us performers, the stage is also all, often a very safe place. It's not where we practice vulnerability. Um, so it's it's up to each one to to see where where they shy away from being honest to what they feel and to practice there. Um, and it can be very mild things, you know, like saying the thing. Wait, I, I try to come up with uh, something from today. I visited my parents, and my father has a new phone. <laughs> um, and he's struggling a lot with his phone, like all well, the technology is very difficult for him. And he, he started, um, he was hard on himself for not understanding. And for him being hard on himself is easy. <laughs> so, I built a conversation around him getting to a point where he admits that he learned something and not only seeing where he doesn't do well. Many people, the positive parts are much harder than, than the negative ones. Uh, negative, it's, it's quite broad, but like where we penalize ourselves or where we, you know, perform as many, it's so hard, we get so much critics and, and we, we try to improve all the time. But I found that also when I was off stage, I kept give, giving myself corrections all the time. And that's so corrosive, man. To give yourself corrections where you're with your friend or girlfriend or whatever, oof, you're never really there. You're just getting all the time corrections, 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 thinking about the next performance, thinking about the next encounter, the next conversation, and never being present. So this is the new discovery for me in recent years of allowing myself not to keep correcting myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a, a theme that I've come back to as well. Like I said, like returning almost full circle to that's the, the things like the vaudeville and, and things like that and realizing what, what I found so magical was there was no judgment and there was no right or wrong, right? I feel like um, those things can be so debilitating. Yes. You know, a game that Elon often proposes, Elon Lev, the guy from The Method, he's, by the way, he's an 82-year-old man. He moves like a snake. He's, he's incredible. And his playfulness is really inspiring. So one of the things he likes to say when, when teaching therapists is the opposite. Regardless of what you think is right, do the opposite. And then when you play with the opposite, you will find, you will start feeling that to be right. And then you have to do the opposite. So it's never getting attached to what you feel is right. Because in time, what remains is this, um, how to say, like the feeling of right becomes detached of what you do. It's just the memory of this is the right thing, even if it's not the right thing for the situation. So you start to work by memory and not by what is actually there. So by the time alternating, okay, this feels right, okay, I change. This feels right, okay, I change. It, you, it, it keeps you somehow in this playful mode of like, 
everything is possible. I just cannot um, give up the, the life in me to a certain pattern. Yeah, I think um, I think when people, maybe maybe especially performers, those places where they they've, whereas you kind of said like it's almost like perhaps like false vulnerability because it it's like the perception of vulnerability, but it's almost as if it started out as as honest vulnerability, but like any skill or any pattern, we develop a groove with it and kind of like stay in that groove as opposed to like, okay, like I've gotten comfortable in that space. I need to like, I need to switch to the other space now. Absolutely. You know, or maybe stand-up comedians as an example, it might be like in the beginning, there was, there was real a real richness and like vulnerability with like the words, you know, but maybe yes. not so vulnerable in our skin or in our bodies or in how we're interacting physically with people. And it's like, well, it's, it's, it's almost, I don't know how I'm, what I want to say. It's as if like, like any movement, we don't want to get stuck in one pattern. So with vulnerability, it's like we need to explore different, different spaces and not get too comfortable in one. Yes. You know, getting comfortable in one is not bad. It's just, uh, giving up the others is something that is questionable. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. It's also asking, uh, it, it makes me think of earlier when you said that we, we, should, we shouldn't be afraid to say, I don't know, um, but also be willing to be humble and, and ask for help, right? Absolutely. That's, the, that's, a, that's a, like a, a, a must step after I don't know. It's not, I don't know. And I succumbed to not knowing and I just lie in bed. And, I don't know. <laughs> or even smile to myself saying, I don't know. The, the next step must follow. And, and okay. I agree completely. We must ask uh, someone, but this someone, and this is the part that I wish to question also, do I have to ask someone that studied the topic or can I ask something? Can I ask a tree? <laughs> Can I ask a dog? Can I ask something that is not necessarily the person with a degree about the matter or Wikipedia? Yeah, so I, I took an online workshop not too long ago with Yosef uh, from Fighting Monkey. Yes. And he even said, he was like, you know, let's be humble. Let's, use, let's ask the ground for help. If we, if we want to move our bodies, like, let's not depend on ourselves. The ground is so helpful, you know? And, and I, I, that came to mind when you were talking about using the tree. It's like, oh, but the floor is here to be our, our dance partner and support us. Look, um, I don't know exactly about Joseph's background, but I, I've been practicing Tai Chi in the past uh, three and a half years. And the practice that we do is, is part that is, you can call it push hands, but it's not the, the combat uh, way of, of uh, like the more fighting way. It's instead we're looking for connection. So we look for a place where in push hands, often it's two people standing in front of one another and trying to get each other off balance. 
And instead, what we try to do is reach to a point where you start to feel off balance, but instead of throwing you off, I stay with you there and I allow you to relax. So you kind of start to expand your boundaries from within and you get, Joseph calls it uh, your universe. Yeah, he says it's between your, the, the space that you occupy in the world is your universe. So your universe is expanding as ours. <laughs> and it's good to expand this, at least in my opinion or from my experience, from a place of uh, allowing yourself to expand instead of demanding expansion. Um, and allowing yourself to expand is, is often starts to come from this I don't know place. Uh, about about the using the ground, this is what I'm trying to introduce more and more in, in, in workshops. It's not a, um, it's a physical connection. Yeah, we have in our mind and through our eyes this distinction between body and ground but it's very possible to physically connect with the ground in, in a deeper level. And if you look at a tree that's growing its roots, if you are very much in your body, this becomes a very practical matter. You can literally grow uh, a, a digging root into the ground that makes you so much more um, powerful in, in the world. But this can only come from letting go. <laughs> it, it doesn't come from forcefully trying to push the ground. That is just the ground pushing you back immediately. You know, roots take their time and they take nourishing. And then the question that follows is, what is most nourishing for my roots to grow? And, and that's, that's what I, I like to ask very often because what was nourishing before is maybe not nourishing now. You know how it goes with monocropping? Like gradually the soil becomes more and more, uh, uh, like less rich. It's the same. If we try to use the same pattern to deepen into ourselves, we will fall into our pattern and trick, trick ourselves into, you know, growing roots in the air. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the ground. And in this deepening, words have no value. <laughs> Right. Because in, 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 in this kind of deepening, it feels to me like the words are, are like an attempt to control as opposed to maybe just embracing the uncertainty and, and being willing to be surprised. It's kind of counterintuitive. The, the moments where I feel a deepening occurs, um, I didn't try to deepen. I didn't try anything. I was just there. Actually, I was there and enjoying myself. And that's where I find that playfulness is so um, potent. Um, because it kind of puts you in a state where you are open to what happens and you embrace the unpredictability of things. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I find that playfulness is often associated with a certain um, tempo, you know, like uh, many happenings and, and running around or catching something, being alert. But I'm curious also about the playfulness that is constantly happening inside the body. Uh, 
like if you really dive into your body and and man there is so much game going on it's like it's really beyond our comprehension and even though it's kind of happening harmoniously there are so many different rhythms <laughs> and and we have nothing to do with that happening it, it it is a part of us but we don't monitor it we don't conduct it at least not consciously so i'm curious about the potential of social interactions being of that nature also like uh, here we're engaging we don't have an exact uh, goal you know the infinite game yeah so we we enjoy the talk and from this joy we are deepening I, when I, I, I facilitated a few workshops recently and, and after one, someone was talking about feeling that it was fun and that it was joyful. And I could tell there was a little bit of like, am I supposed to feel that feeling? Do you know, I, I don't know if you, you recognize this where people almost feel guilty that they had fun because it's almost as if joy and fun Ha, almost have been stigmatized as if that's not like real work or something. Yes. So I, you know, without being somebody who, you know, finished university or anything, the only thing that came to mind was I just said, well, we've been evolving for billions of years. And for some reason, we still have happiness and joy. It hasn't evolved out. So if we still have it, there's a reason for it, you know, and that should be nurtured and not stigmatized and pushed away. Okay. And I don't know, based on your research, I, I read something a while back because I feel like this might be kind of something you've crossed paths with, but the idea that like, what happens in the brain when we feel happiness is closely related to creativity. So when we go through the creative process, like happiness is on the other side of that oftentimes so even then i thought to myself oh well from like a evolutionary perspective I mean, as homo sapiens like it was almost like the carrot to like explore and try and discover and innovate was that feeling of of joy on the other side of it I'm, I'm thinking, um, what if we reverse the order? What if mm, in whatever is already there, uh, we allow ourselves to be content. <laughs> From that place, that is a place of creativity already. And the more I find things in, in me or in my relationships that I um, acknowledge as some resistance and then embrace them as a part of the relationship and what I learn from the relationship and how it enriches me also, then it's like 
I don't know. It's like you slide into another level, <laughs> like uh, you deepen a little bit just by letting go into what is already there. And then creativity unfolds. It's like it's not something that you need to do or you come up with. It's just, it's, it's a state. <laughs> you know, there was a, 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 an Irish friend of Tom and myself in this workshop where I, I was uh, teaching. Uh, Robbie Adrixel is his name. And we uh, parted to groups and we, we talked about the... Um, what is self-practice for us or what is our self-practice? And Robbie said something I'll never forget. He said, well, I, I do many things, but my main self-practice is being in a state of love. I was like, damn it, man, that's deep. He <laughs> um, said, no, really, in, in, in everything that I do, I, I, I try to go there. And he stayed with me ever since. You know, since I, I, I taught my first workshop maybe three years ago, three and a half. And from the, it took me some time to kind of tune into what I was doing. It started as more physical and looking for uh, introducing less effort in movement. But then I, I, I went more into human relationships and how movement is already abundant there. So let's just embrace the movement that is already there and, and see where it takes us just by appreciating how rich it already is. And invariably in all the workshops, even though I don't mention the word love even once, always the feedbacks have to do with love. And, and it's very interesting because I wasn't aiming there, but perhaps allowing ourselves to appreciate what is already there is linked with the feeling of love. Um, and my workshops are sometimes challenging, like sometimes people experience difficulty or um, they don't know what I'm asking from them. Um, or um, they expect one thing and they get another. And all the things that come up, be it the frustration from not getting a clear direction or the frustration of getting something that is different from what you expected or the challenge of meeting uh, a difficulty in you from accepting whatever arises. If the space facilitates that happening as a part of what should happen, like it's not like, hey, this is a, a byproduct, push it away, let's focus on the workshop. This is the workshop. <laughs> And then the feeling that people get from being seen and allowing that to kind of be okay is something that apparently has to do a lot with love. So I can say that I am learning love through teaching. And it has a lot to do with uh, loving myself, yeah? Let's not, uh, not avoid this subject. Loving someone else as a... Uh, replacement of loving oneself is a fraud. <laughs> it's like a space holder, but it will not last. So in a way, when I teach, I fuck up many times. I don't give the best directions. 
I propose a drill and then I realize, okay, this is irrelevant. But I allow myself to do these things and not to run away from them. Like I communicate sometimes verbally, look, I propose this, but I now realize it's not the right thing to do. So I'm sorry, let's move on from here. And this is so rarely communicated. And I wish for more teachers to communicate their fuck-ups. <laughs> like, it gives you such, not, not for the sake of the students, for the sake of the teachers, it gives you such freedom to not try to be perfect all the time. And, and this allows the students not to try to be perfect all the time. And then, I mean, what, what more can you ask for? Just like you're allowed to be whoever you are. You know, when, um, I had a friend who I went to theater school with, and she ended up being pretty successful in television and things like that. But she told me that she used to go to auditions, and every audition she did, she would walk in the door, and she would intentionally trip and fall on her face. And it was kind of this thing that you were talking about, because she said that she would get up, and it was always uphill from there, and it was always this welcome of like mistakes and imperfections because she'd shown the casting directors that she could trip and fall on her face um i don't know as you told if you as you talked about kind of welcoming the fuck-ups she kind of was figured it out and was just doing it intentionally but yes, um, but then let's look at what we said about patterns mm -hmm. if that becomes your go-to vulnerability it's no longer vulnerability you've practiced it Mm -hmm. It's where you go. It's like, it may look to the outside world like you are imperfect, mm -hmm. but you have this imperfection. Right. So that's your, that became your strong point and not your weakness. Right. Only on day one was it the weakness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I admire, I admire this approach and I admire the, the, willingness to to reduce the judgment and 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 give people as well as yourself like that 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 feeling of love and compassion that's kind of going both ways um because I, maybe maybe it's just the kind of the spaces i've drifted through but in movement there's there's not often that you know i feel like there's a lot of kind of um yeah this feeling of right and wrong and 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 I don't know that people realize, and maybe there's more research that needs to be done on, on teachers from the teacher's point of view, but there's not enough compassion for what saying that's right or that's wrong, what that means to people and what that, and how that um, affects them over time. Yes. Look, I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm curious about the short term, first of all, <laughs> like, um, it might, it might have, at the moment, we have so many variables in our life, so a study about the long term will be very challenging, but I I'd say my workshops are usually three days long because it takes time to experience yourself differently. Um, like our patterns of relating to ourselves in a certain way are so strongly embedded that I can 
help you experience one thing in the first day, but it will be washed away very, very quickly. So I'll try to give you a certain, like a different way to see yourself throughout a few days. And in the end, maybe you will uh, see this, you will uh, feel the effect, uh, the immediate effect, not just something in the long run. Perhaps what I try to say is that I don't want anyone to believe me. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there are so many uh, publications or advertisements that are um, supporting their offers in various ways to make themselves uh, look reliable. But I, 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 and I understand that from a publicity point of view, but there is so much deception in the world. It's not that I don't trust people, it's just that I, I want people to trust themselves. And if something feels right for you to try, then try it. You know, um, okay. You see, words, words are tricky. The only reason one will have to really try a different route is if something failed for too long. And that too long is yours to decide. Like um, I've been in the dance world, I've been dancing since I'm nine years old. I, I took a break when I was 24. And out of this 10 years were in agonizing pain. And it took me these 10 years to try a different route, to meet myself in, as an adult with not dancing uh, in my life. Um, and I only, I had to have this break, kind of make the circle and, and find myself into this world again. But with the understanding that I will not go back to the self, um, uh, criticizing way that I've been uh, baptized into when I entered this world um, because it doesn't work. I, I was a very good dancer, but I felt like crap. <laughs> so what, what is it worth? And, and then, you know, it's, it's not just about being a perfectionist in what you do. It's, it's um, all of us, we, we work in a certain place or we, we kind of make our path in the world. And regardless of the, how this path looks, the world kind of shapes us into feeling we're not enough. We get this from everywhere. And I, I want to challenge that not just conceptually and telling you, hey, there is another option. No, I want you to, it's not that I want to. Okay, I want, if you feel that this is not working, that you know you have another option. And it's not, reading about it will not be enough. This is something you need to experience in your own body. Because the frustration that you feel is not just a thought, it's in your body. So if you allow that frustration to kind of uh, unfold and present itself, then you have a chance to kind of allow yourself to meet the ground, crash if you need to, but don't hold on because 
I have met patients that are holding on for over 90 years. It's not doing well. So what, what are you going to be focusing moving forward on, on teaching or on, on treating? Um, teaching is, is my passion. Um, perhaps because it scares me most. <laughs> I, I, I feared teaching for a very long and teaching, guiding, leading anyone. Uh, I was afraid to do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, um, um, make wrong assumptions about people. And the only way I could come into teaching was not making assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I make them, yes, of course, we all do, but I, I, I become better and better in not believing them. <laughs> Because, uh, and this I learned from teaching, from treating mostly. If I have any prediction about a patient, I will not be dealing with the patient. I'll be dealing with my prediction. And if, if my intention is to do the best job I can, I must let go of any diagnosis I read, anything. And bear in mind the, the patient's request and wish, but I attend to the body because the body speaks truth, really, always. Um, and words they trick us. So I, I, I get inspiration from meeting patients, but I am passionate about teaching mostly. Um, and I wish for the, you know, whenever the world opens to touring again, that's, that's where my energy goes. Um, well, I hope, um, I hope you'll find a way to the United States sooner than later. I don't know. Yeah. When was the last time you were in St. Louis? When was the last visit? Ah, St. Louis quite long ago, but I think my last American tour, uh, my sister from St. Louis came to visit me in Boulder and we went hiking around. Uh, that was, yeah, 2019. So long ago. Yeah. Well, I think uh, maybe 2022. Who knows if we're lucky 2021, but 2022, I think it should happen again. I'd love that, man. Yeah, it would be uh it would be amazing to connect in person because um I don't know, I think uh so much of what you're saying really resonates and and lands with me and and I don't know, after speaking I realize the language you're using about kind of existing with a constant state of playfulness is is really beautiful. And it was only in this like last couple minutes where you were talking about, you have all these knowledge and you have all these skills and everything and, and the information is there. But once you start actually practicing, you're playing, which means that stuff just needs to, to be there in the back, not at the front so that you can play whatever it is, if you're playing the treatment or if you're playing the teaching, because that stuff gets in the way, you just have to trust that it's there and, and, and play that game in that moment. Yes, sir. I'll give you an example just to, 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 so you can see how ridiculous this becomes. Imagine we had a course of hugging. You could become a really, really good hugger 
And then when you hug your wife, you would think of what you learned in this course. You see how ridiculous this is? <laughs> Mm -hmm. These things that happen in, in, in human interaction are authentic and we don't need to learn or, yeah, we don't need to learn them. You can practice them for sure. Every hug is, is a practice, but it's not with the thought of how am I going to get better at this? Mm -hmm. It's with the pure joy of, of being, of yeah. your hearts playing with each other, you know? It's mm -hmm. that. Yeah, but when you hug, you play the hug. You don't you don't diagnose and then when logically hug, do the hug. My man, when you hug, the hug plays you. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the point. That's really it. So how can we live in a way that life plays us and not us trying to be smart on life? That's so foolish. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know? Right. So, yeah, it's, it's there. Where, wherever, in whichever direction we agree to be open to, comes yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more it's like the, um it's the it's the it's the playfulness mindset yes which is love yeah um if people want to connect with you what is what is the best way to to make that happen yeah, so my workshops are titled weightlessness uh, so i have a page uh, on online like on facebook that you can follow mm -hmm. um just look weightlessness almoglov and, and you will find it also on instagram i announce my workshops or treatment tours whenever i treat abroad um and maybe i'll just make a small uh, proposition to everybody listening <laughs> um I'll clear any template that I had ready and I'll see what comes up. The next time you practice something that you love, it doesn't have to be something that you learned or mastered, certainly. Feel your body. And kind of drop into that feeling. Um, don't try to hang on to it because it will run away immediately. But just allow yourself in moments of joy to be baptized by this joy. <laughs> and this can be a certain um, mark for the potential of being uh, in joy in your body. And it doesn't matter where you find it, but make sure you have more of those in your life and then creativity will come and love will be more clear. Yeah, that's it, I guess. Almag, <laughs> I'm so happy that Tom put us in touch. Um, this was really, really wonderful and I really, I really can't wait to connect with you in person sometime soon. Likewise, my friend. Have a great evening. I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye, man.